Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, CNN, Fox News. Think about all of the tools that are out there to shape public opinion these days and how everyone is bombarded with all of this information, some real, some false. I mean, Donald Trump has 89 million followers that he tweets to every day, sometimes over 200 in one day and with a daily average of over 30. But what about back in the 1950s? How was public perception changed back then? Well, it was all by newspaper. And back in 1954, a neurosurgeon named Sam Shepard was on trial for first-degree murder for murdering his wife. And he was convicted at that first trial, and it had to get reversed by the Supreme Court because of what courts called trial by newspaper. Shepard was really convicted by the newspapers before his trial even began. Along comes a young lawyer named F. Lee Bailey. He was only in his early 30s, and he took the case after the first trial, after Shepard was convicted, took it all the way to the Supreme Court and won, and then took the case to a second trial. This was, at the time, the trial of the century. Shepard became known as the character for The Fugitive in the TV show and the movie, and F. Lee Bailey's career was launched. He represented so many big clients over the years, Patty Hearst, O.J. Simpson, and so on. And it's a real treat today to talk to F. Lee Bailey, who's been doing this for so long and so well. Um, this is the last episode of the season, so I'm glad we're ending it with a bang with Lee Bailey. And we'll get to it next on For the Defense. I'm here with Lee Bailey, who is known as the greatest cross-examiner of a generation. And I'm going to be discussing with him uh, the case that really thrust him into the national spotlight, the Dr. Sam Shepard case. So welcome to the show, Mr. Bailey. Thank you. I, I, I want to start out just talking about how you got into the case. You were so young at the time. I think you were in your 20s, right? Uh, like a good many things in my life, it was a fluke. I was 28 and uh, had just been admitted to the bar one year earlier. And the Shepherd family was looking for a lawyer that knew something about lie detection. And so they combed the country and they found two. The other one was in Alabama and he'd just been appointed judge. So they said, well, you're all we got. And I happened to be teaching at the uh, polygraph school at the time, and a fellow who wrote a bestseller on Sam Shepard wandered over and uh, talked to me for a while. And that introduced me to the family, and they hired me for the sole purpose of making sure that Sam Shepard got a fair lie detector test. And the state of Ohio said, we don't want him to have uh, a lie detector test at all, especially a fair one. Huh. So, so were you able to give him the, the, the polygraph or no? Not, not till the day he died. Wow. Wow. Um, and so you come into the case as, as this uh, lie detector expert, um, but you end up taking on the case in total. Well, I was practicing criminal law. 
uh, including homicide. So that part of it wasn't a fluke, it was simply the manner of introduction. I took it on, um, I went to the governor of the Ohio Supreme Court and said, look, if this guy didn't do it, you gotta find it out. If he did do it, it's a good way to show the public the system works, what do you got to lose? Well, that didn't draw much enthusiasm. And I began to suspect that they knew very well that if he took a test, he'd probably pass it. Matter of fact, a police lieutenant in Cleveland said to me, he said, you know, you're a young guy and you're getting a lot of, lot of publicity over this, but apart from that, why do you care so much uh, about him being in prison? And I said, because I really, I think the guy's innocent. And the lieutenant said, well, if he's innocent, I don't want to know it. Oh, my God. And, and so, so let me ask you this. When you came into the case, I mean, he had been in prison for years. It, it seemed at least hopeless from what a lot of people thought. Um, he had already gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court once and lost. Um, and so you take on the case and, and, and you file a federal habeas. Is that the, is that the introduction for your role in the case? Um, no, my introduction was suing the warden in Ohio to compel him to allow me to bring a polygraph examiner in. Supreme Court of Ohio said, no, that's not one of the prisoner's rights. And about that time, the Warren Court, which came down with a spate of decisions favoring federal habeas release in state cases where the state had gotten sloppy, and certainly in the Shepherd case, they got sloppy. So uh, I became convinced that Ohio did not want to know whether or not Sam Shepard was innocent. And that was a pretty bad state of affairs. So I did sue them in federal court. I sued the warden for Sam's release, which is standard federal habeas proceedings. I cited three cases fresh out of the U.S. Supreme Court. Each case, someone had been doing a lot of time. Flaws were found. They were let out. Each petitioner was named Charles. Ah. <laughs> okay, but our guy was not. Um, so, so we have uh, petitioner Sam. Um, and tell tell us about the press at the time you come into the case. Had it died down from the craziness? I mean, it must have been just insane for you as a new lawyer to the bar coming into the biggest case in the country. Well, it was interesting. You couldn't walk down the street without people stopping you and saying, are you going to get him out? Um, bear in mind, about this time, the Fugitive TV show was running. That was a rather transparent takeoff on Dr. Sam Shepard. They changed a bushy-headed man to a one-armed man, but otherwise the facts were, were really there. So the public was intrigued. And of course, everybody knew that the fugitive was innocent. And so the reality of the culprit 
And the fugitive was helpful indeed. When I finally got around to picking a jury for the second trial, uh, for the first time in my life, I had people in the jury box who really did presume the defendant to be innocent because they knew Dr. Kimball was innocent and Bryce Shepard was innocent. It's a curious juxtaposition of media and courtroom, but in this case, it flipped about rather nicely from my perspective. Yeah, it sounds like it sounds like it flipped really well. But before it flipped, you had a guy, the editor in chief of the Cleveland Press, Louis Seltzer. Um, how did he react to the fugitive in this show? Sort of pushing for your client's innocence. He must have been out of his mind. Well, if I may be permitted a little little language, I will encounter a meeting I had with Louis Seltzer, which indicates that he was a at least on his way out of his mind at the time. I had put a proposal to him. Indeed, I got him out of bed at two in the morning in New York. Uh, I'm sure it was the wisdom of a bottle of scotch that compelled me to recognize that hour as the exact hour at which he probably would love to receive my phone call. Um, And he was not pleased, but he did agree to meet me in his office. I went to his office and he had with him two henchmen, I call them. One was a managing editor, one was a city editor. And Louis Seltzer was just a little guy, but these gorillas looked pretty menacing. Um, what the hell? I was wore a Marine uniform longer than they'd worn anything. So I turned it in. I said, Look, you have nothing to lose. Back a test. He turned one down during the trial by the cops. So back a test. If he passes, you're heroes, uh, and he should have taken it beforehand. And if he flunks, you've been right all along. What do you got to lose? No. Uh, because once again, I got the sense they damn well knew he would pass it. So Seltzer didn't say a word. His henchman lit into me like I was Adolf Hitler incarnate with a bit of Tojo thrown in. But he said, you're just another runny-nosed kid who's here to try and grab a few headlines, and then we won't hear anything more about you again. Indeed, uh, we expect Harry over at True Magazine gave you a few bucks to come here and ask these questions. And I blew up. I'm not a fellow at all. Hot temper, you can't be and be a courtroom lawyer and a pilot, at least not hot very often. But I said, you know, you, you guys don't give a damn whether he's innocent or not, so what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to go and get him out. After I get him out, I'm going to come here and I'm going to sue all of you, particularly you and Mr. Seltzer. And if you should die before I accomplish that, I am going to find you and be on your grave. Oh, and how did he react to that? How did he react to that? He was not pleased. <laughs> so, so that meeting ends. Um, did, have you ever followed through on that promise, Lee? I, I haven't looked him up yet, but I will. I'm <laughs> doing a, a, a thing for Bill Steele about a year ago, and uh, I was tempted to have him guide me to the spot of Donald Freed. Maybe we draw a crowd. Gotta love that. 
We'll hear from Effley Bailey on how he gets Sam Shepard out in For the Defense next. It's every young lawyer's dream to argue in front of the Supreme Court. I mean, that's what law school and lawyering is all about, getting that chance. And here's Lee Bailey in his early 30s with the biggest case in the country, and he gets oral argument before the Supreme Court. And any lawyer who argues appeals will tell you that the amount of time you put in to get ready for an appellate argument is just crazy. In the Supreme Court, you get 30 minutes aside. In most appellate courts, you get 15 minutes aside. And you put hundreds and hundreds of hours into the preparation time for those 15 minutes because the judges can ask you whatever questions they want. Unlike in trial, where the trial lawyer has all the control, you question the witnesses, they have to answer you. No one can really stop you. In the appellate court, you have to answer the judge's questions. And so you have to be prepared for every aspect of the record of the case law and so on. And so it makes for a very nerve wracking experience for a lawyer and you have to spend tons and tons of time to get ready. You'll hear about how F. Lee Bailey got ready for his Supreme Court argument in the Sam Shepard case in For the Defense, next. So, you know, I, I started following the Supreme Court case before we get to trial number two of Shepard. I mean, you're in your 20s. You're just a year of the bar. You take the case. You get all the way up to the Supreme Court um, and get to argue in the Supreme Court. I mean, it must have been the thrill of a lifetime to, to be able to do that as such a young lawyer. Arguing before the um, nine wise people is an experience, one of the few in life I've encountered, that's every bit as good as it's cracked up to be. You've got nine very, very different personalities up on the bench. At the time I was there, two of them were so short that if they didn't lean forward, you couldn't see them. <laughs> Black, they're both about five one, and uh, the, the bench is halfway up to the ceiling. So, uh, but if you caught their interest, and you saw that little face pop, pop up over the horizon, you were about to get a question that would knock you on your ass. I mean, these guys were both really tough questioners. But <clears throat> I felt very comfortable going in once the arguments started. I could see the other side wasn't prepared. The, uh, uh, the court kind of opened up by making a fool of the Attorney General of Ohio, who richly deserved it. He came in with what I call a tank town approach, uh, a hot shot offering. He said to the nine justices, when it was his turn to argue, he said, and, and I will be forgiven, I hope, for imperfectly um, <clears throat> trying to uh, imitate his Ohio twang, and many don't have it, but he did, like Boston Mochdale. And he said, Your Honors, he said, This is just like a case from Mr. Bailey's home state where a bunch of bleeding hearts kept the case alive after it should have died. And uh, Hugo Black interrupted him. He said, Mr. Saxby, are we going to have to decide that case 
to reach this one. We're talking about Sacco and Vanzetti, of course. Fantastic. He just didn't have anything to say. And and Saxby ends up becoming the Attorney General of the United States later. I guess this 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 uh, unpreparedness didn't really uh, hurt him in his bid to become the Attorney General. No, I've not seen it to be the case that government lawyers get promoted on merit. <laughs> Very true and fair point. Um, and and so you know today when when we're waiting for a Supreme Court decision, we we sit on our computers and we we uh, wait for the Supreme Court to push it through, and we see the cases come out. Um, on decision day, but back then, of course, you have to wait. H- how do you hear that you've won uh, in the Supreme Court? Uh, all you do is worry. I mean, I was not terribly worried because I thought everything I read was pointed in my direction and that I would get a good decision. And I was not surprised when it was written by Justice Tom Clark. Um, very light anyway, as I saw him at a cocktail party about six months later. And he said, how did you like my opinion in your Shepherd case? It was eight to one. And I said, I liked it a lot. Uh, I, I particularly liked some of your phraseology. He said, you should. I took it right out of your brief. <laughs> That's great. I love it. Um, and, and, and do you find, do they call you and tell you the opinions come out or do, or do you get it in the mail? How, how, did, how did you find out exactly? I think you, you find out because the clerk calls you just as it hits the wire. Got it. Um, and then, of course, you know, all hell must have broken loose because you're going to get another trial. Um, and, and Sam Shepard's going to, he's out on bond at this point, right? Uh, he was out on bond, yes. Pr- prison wasn't so kind to Sam. I, I saw that his, uh, his mom committed suicide while he was in and his dad died. I mean, it must have been just brutal on him to be in. His dad died, then his mother committed suicide. Um, it was extremely tough on the family, I dare say that had it not been for the extremely strong character backbone of Steve Shepard, who was a little better, um, that the case would have died and nobody would have brought me into it. Because bear in mind that the Shepherds had been through nine different proceedings before I got the case. And they were tired, they were, they were sick. Of course, I mean, at that point it must have seemed you know, extremely hopeless with with all those proceedings and losses one after another. I mean, it's it's really remarkable. And and then you have to get ready for trial number two. And I suppose um, in studying trial number one, you come up with a different strategy. By the way, in trial number one, we have a, a pretty well known lawyer who defended him, a guy named Corrigan, right? Well, he was well known, but he was not well qualified. Corrigan, unfortunately, was a labor lawyer. And he made a couple of mistakes in the Shepherd trial, which were terrible. He allowed the state to ask Sam if the police offered him a lie detector test. And uh, that, that should have been grounds for a mistrial. He didn't even object. And during the deliberations, the jurors were calling home and talking to their families. And that's an absolute no-no, because you cannot contaminate those kinds of conversations 
to the point where the family's attitude or opinion doesn't leach its way into the ground around you. Of course. And, and so, you know, in preparing for trial number two, it looks like you, you took a totally different strategy in your, in your, uh, in your attack for trial number two. Um, well, yes, totally different in this sense. I thought that the jury wanted to know who did it, and I thought that was fairly plain. And as a result of that, I put on a positive defense saying, no, Sam Shepard didn't kill his wife. His neighbor's wife killed his wife. And a couple of them after the trial told me they thought that based on the evidence, that made a lot of sense. So it was vindicated to a degree. But of course, there's one thing that's always bothered me, and I hope you do, uh, about the criminal law, and that is if a guy walks in totally mistakenly accused, Levy White hasn't done a thing wrong, the best we can get for him is a verdict of not proven, which to many means he got away with it, beat the rap. There is no such thing anymore as a verdict of innocence, meaning you didn't do it and they were mistaken to charge you. And although I've had juries come out and say that publicly, there is no form they can sign. And that's the way we vote. And, and do you think there should be uh, something on a verdict form saying innocent? Certainly, because why should a person be condemned to be charged falsely and then having been acquitted, like Lizzie Borden, for instance, live her or his entire life with a cloud of suspicion still firmly in place, they beat the rap. And, and, and do you think do you think in the Shepherd case in the second jury, they would have, if that had been given to them, they would have marked off innocent as opposed to not proven or not guilty? I think they would have been a good shot. They would have done that. I'll tell you why. The uh, foreman of the jury was a 33-year-old engineer named James Mitchell. And he was a sharp guy. And Cleveland was divided into those who had been around in 54, thereafter when the Shepard case was taking place, and those who were new to the scene and didn't come with the kind of innate prejudices that you find in uh, embedded in criminal cases. And they listened carefully to the evidence. To them, it made no sense at all. It, it looked to them like the state had shown that Shepard was um, not guilty. And indeed, two of your Ohio Supreme Court justices, perhaps the two most influential in 1956 in the uh, first major case, um, Taft and Hart both said they thought the state had proven Shepard innocent with its own evidence. That's an extraordinary position for an appellate court to take. I don't think I've ever seen it before or since. But I think the majority of the younger jurors felt that way. And if we had available to them, you can choose innocence that he didn't do it, somebody else did, that some of them certainly would have chosen that. And, and let me, let's go back to that first trial in the 50s. I mean, 
that was sort of the first trial by newspaper case that we had. And, and one of the reasons the Supreme Court, of course, reverses. And, and in reading about the, the coverage, I mean, the press was sitting in the front row of the, of the trial, sort of working with the prosecution. Um, in trial two, how does the press work? Are they as involved or, or how does the press uh, interact with the prosecution in the case in trial number two where you're uh, fighting? The, uh, the first trial judge was running for election and he, as far as I'm concerned, allowed the courtroom to become chaos. The second judge was a man I was afraid of to begin with because I asked him to change the venue up to Toledo, where I had found a fairly um, good attitude among the people on the street. Uh, and many of them thought Shepard should have been acquitted the first time around. He would hear none of it. And he said, Mr. Bailey, I understand your legal reasoning, but I think it's important that the city of Cleveland prove that it can give a fair trial after the Supreme Court has said we failed to do so. So I'm going to try the case right here. Um, I know it's had a lot of notoriety. I'll be liberal with uh, the challenges that I allow you. And if this is special, Problem with the juror, the case has been hanging around 10 years now, actually 12. Um, if there's a special problem with the juror, you come to the bench you, and uh, we'll go to chambers if necessary and try and work it out. And Frank Taldy was a, a veteran who had seen combat and had a metal plate in his head, which had nothing to do with his intellectual function. He was a good judge and a tough judge which is the kind I prefer. These are the rules. You damn well follow the rules. You'll stay out of trouble with me. But the verdict uh, was very definitive. Uh, and to kind of pack it home, uh, James Vitchell began to get to his house. That afternoon, it was announced. And he asked to and did go on video in Cleveland, maybe with some help from Dorothy Fulltime, uh, who was the TV radio person of Cleveland at the time, a wonderful woman. And he said, look, I want you to get something straight. I don't know where you got your ideas, but the evidence is clear. This guy didn't kill his wife. Don't bother to call me to complain about my vote on the verdict, or I'm going to come looking for you. Ha, ha, I, I, I love it. And, and let me ask you, I mean, the press with, with the newspaper, the constant newspaper, uh, you know, drumbeat for guilty at the first trial. And I understand that it flipped, but I mean, compare it so that our listeners now who, who, you know, most people don't even get a newspaper anymore, look at a newspaper. It's all social media now and, and a trial on Twitter or these sorts of things. I mean, what was it? How does it compare having um, trial by newspaper versus trial by social media in today's world? Well, usually by the time the trial starts, a judge will lock up the jury if it's a hot case in most states. So the problem is more one of pretrial publicity than it is of publicity during the actual trial. Uh, there are enough tools 
out there between locking up jurors, instructing them, they can't listen to the papers and so forth, listen to the TV and read the papers, to protect them fairly well. And I, I was uh, astounded, for instance, some of the things that the OJ jury didn't know about, even though they've been published in every corner of Mongolia. So uh, I think things are improving that way, but another thing is happening. The print media are fading into obscurity. There are very, very few court reporters, I mean, uh, criminal reporters are now whose narratives I would trust if I had to jump into your case suddenly and because you got sick and didn't have a transcript. And yet in the past, we had a number of reporters. You could read down that paragraph. They got every important fact, none of the, the junk. But Lee, you, you brought up, uh, you brought up OJ. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you brought up OJ. H how did the media coverage in OJ compared to Shepard? I mean, was it, was it more intense, less intense, just as intense? How, how was the coverage? Uh, how do you compare the coverage? The coverage in OJ was uh, a circus, but both of them were circuses. It would be very hard to say that one was better conducted than the other, but if you had to pay, OJ was more disciplined, had a better judge who cared more, uh, and bear in mind, he was married to the senior cop in all of uh, L.A., female cop. But I, was, I think he gave a better trial. Judge Blythe gave a lousy trial to Sam Shepard. And to compound it, not only was he running for judge re-election, which I think is terrible, never be on the campaign trail, on the bench in a live case, same time, but the prosecutor was running for judge. And uh, I found that a little bit to stomach too. As a matter of fact, I'm sure I'm not remembered with affection for it, but one fellow said to me, well, what's your view of Cleveland? This after I first got acquainted with the case. And I said, so far it's shaping up it's the biggest hick time in the world. <laughs> um, let me ask you, since we're, we're, we're talking about OJ just for a second, and we'll get back to Shepard, but would you have wanted on the OJ verdict form for the jury to have an option of innocent, or would you have asked for that or no? Absolutely. I think we would have gotten it too because I'm about to come out with a book about OJ, very detailed in the mechanics of how the verdict developed and why I knew the day before that the verdicts were both favorable when Johnny Cochran and others were sweating and betting and doing everything to the contrary. But the, my experience combined with the mechanics of the way the verdict was produced, meetings with the judge, then the juror, et cetera, et cetera, pretty much told me what was in the envelope. It is apparent that the jurors concluded of the several defenses they had uh, that were optional to them. The jurors concluded that he had no opportunity to commit the crime. And the first element of any criminal case is opportunity. There must be opportunity. If there's no motive, that doesn't kill the case. There need not be, there can be a random killing, 
but there's got to be opportunity. And they uh, concluded OJ just never had the chance. So even if he were Satan reincarnate, he didn't do these killings. And, and getting back to Shepard for a second, when you talk about motive, the, a big feature of trial number one was that he had a motive because of his mistress, which he denied and lied about. Um, and, and then when he testified, he had to, I think, meekly admit that he, he lied when initially asked. Is that one of the reasons you didn't call him at trial number two? Or what was the thinking there? You'll hear why Lee Bailey didn't call Sam Shepard at trial number two in For the Defense next. So Sam Shepard testified in trial number one and got really hurt. And many say, in addition to the newspaper stuff, that's why he was convicted. He just didn't do a great job at trial number one. You're going to hear why Lee Bailey didn't call him in trial number two. But one thing I wanted to point out was how much uh, more difficult second trials are than first trials. And most people don't understand that at a second trial, the government has heard everything that the defense has put forward. So they're ready for the defenses. They're ready for the defendant if he's testified. They're ready for the surprise witness and testimony. So second trials are very, very difficult. But in this one, um, Lee Bailey changed the strategy and didn't call Sam Shepard. And it really helped him out uh, at this second trial. And you'll hear what happens next and for the defense. Now, the reason I didn't call Sam was actually manifold. Number one, he spent 10 years in prison for a crime he did not commit. I'm satisfied beyond any doubt. I think most people are now. Now, that's, that's 10 tough years. That's called hard time. That changes your personality. You become a survivor. Then he got out and half the people said, well, we know you did it. You got that smart-ass kid lawyer got you out, but he still did not get uh, redemption by a long shot. And <clears throat> as time went along, it became clearer and clearer that the evidence against him had been dishonest in the first trial, and that people made up stories. Not that they didn't do that in the other case. So, his publicity in the courtroom was execrable. His headlines in the Daily Paper denouncing him as guilty during a trial when the jury was not ever instructed not to read was execrable. Shepard wins that round hands down. Um, the problem with OJ was the, the print reporters with the exception of a couple, Linda Deutsch being one of them from AP, the print reporters are pretty much a dying breed. So the public would get its feed on the daily happenings and the OJ case from no more than snippets, because that's what nightly TV gives you, snippets. Unless you go into the, one of the magazine programs and look at some issue in depth, like 60 Minutes. Uh, they give you some important impression that was relayed to a writer that was mouthed by an anchor to what happened that day. And Johnny Cochran and I would often scratch our head and say, what courtroom was that in? You know, that, I, 
I've talked to a bunch of other um, great criminal lawyers, Roy Black and Tom Mesro, and, and they all seem to say the same thing about media coverage, that it's not um, accurate, that the media coverage really skews against the criminal defendant and for the prosecution. I mean, has that been your experience across all these cases in Shepard and in OJ and all of them? Well, I would say with proper reverence, you're talking to the right people because there are no better lawyers than Tom Miser on them and Roy Black, and they are a dying breed, I hate to tell you. Um, I think that pretrial publicity is by and large kept under pretty good control today by trial judges in big cases. To this extent, I haven't seen many jurors come out the door where I believe that inadmissible evidence, because the only evil in pretrial publicity is that it brings to the jurors information that the judge would have barred as unreliable. It circumvents the rules of evidence. Uh, it allows the reporters to decide what the jurors should know because they're not bound by anything. And after a while, it's kind of tough for the jurors to sort it out. Now, in the uh, OJ case, there are quite a few things the jurors didn't know when the verdict came back, uh, for which I commend the security, because theirs was a terrible ordeal. I mean, it was nine months of being pretty well locked away. And, and a lot of it, tragically, in OJ, was just damned unnecessary. Judge Edo, I could not forgive him. He would take a weekend off when the jury could have been deliberating to go give a speech somewhere. Now, not a nasty man, uh, but that was just thoughtless. And I didn't see it happen. It was a great, the OJ case is a great disappointment to me to the extent that it's almost a diametric opposite. The Shepard case uh, was a great relief, mostly because I'm a Marine and bullheaded, and what you normally have to do to get something done is tell me it can't be done. And I had more lawyers tell me, you know, you better get a big fee. You're wasting your time in the Shepard case because it's been lost 11 times and it can't be won. Did you get a big fee? Um, eventually I got some decent money. I know it was enough to build my mother a summer house. <laughs> okay. And, and, you know, in the Shepard case, you were the boss, commander in chief, everything in that trial, you were the lead dog. Um, and, and I, I read, uh, Edward Bennett Williams's old book saying he would never co-counsel a case where he wasn't the decision maker. He just refused to do it. Um, because it, if there were too many chefs, it would usually cause a disaster in the case. In OJ, there were so many lawyers. Was it was it difficult with so many lawyers in OJ versus being uh, the boss in the Shepard case? Well, OJ is the only case where I've not been mid-counsel. And I gave that a lot of thought. But because my role was segregated, specialized, and because Johnny Cochran was such an extraordinary person, I decided to give it a try, and I was motivated by the fact 
that I was convinced right from the outset that O.J. was getting a bad rap. But Edward Bennett Williams was my mentor, maybe the best trial lawyer that ever lived, if there is such a thing. I tend to doubt it, but he certainly was very, very good. I had lunch with him the day after I took the bar. I asked him, how do you pull a rabbit out of a hat in a courtroom like you seem to do? He said, well, you bring 50 hats and 50 rabbits. You're very damn lucky. <laughs> I love it. I, I used to work uh, at Williams and Connolly uh, after after uh, after Williams had passed away, unfortunately. So I never I never met him in person, but I, I did see him try a case down in Miami. I I popped into the courtroom a few times during the Posner trial, and it was when he was very sick, um, and and uh, it was it was terrible because he was he was so sick, but he was still fighting to the very end. You and I were in the courtroom at the same time. Wow. It was two floors up. The Posner case is going on uh, in front of Judge Gene Spellman. I was two floors up in front of Judge Elsie Hastings defending a marijuana case. And I asked him for a couple of minutes to go down and say hello to my old friend, Ed William, of course. So I trooped down. I kind of sunk in the back of the courtroom. And Ed was picking jurors at the time. He didn't look good. He's 100 pounds overweight. Um, I think he had cancer at the time. He certainly, uh, he died at what, 68? Yeah, young. And uh, when I walked in the courtroom, Spellman taunted me. And I said, wait, wait, wait. Everybody stop. He said, Mr. Posner, you can have Mr. Williams as your defense lawyer. Or you could have Mr. Bailey as your defense lawyer, but you can't have them both. The government wouldn't have a chance. <laughs> what a great story. Spellman was the best, wasn't he? And Spellman, by the way, was dying and died a month later from cancer. And, and what happened in your trial before Al C? Uh, we got the 10 years we deserved. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you finished second in that one. Yeah. Now we got caught uh, bringing a uh, DC-3 into the coast of North Carolina, and we were in the airplane, so the defense has become difficult, as you know, at this point. It, they sure do, but 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 so so back to the shepherd, where you, where you have a defense. I mean, in that case, you said you started pointing the finger at at um, a woman named Esther Hauk. But a bunch of people thought it would have been um, Richard Eberling who might be the better suspect. Um, and, and, and in that, um, the reason why is because his blood was, I think, found in the, in the house. Why didn't you go with, with uh, Eberling as the suspect as opposed to the woman? Well, there were too few reasons to think that Eberling just chanced upon Marilyn Shepard. Uh, had sex with her. Got her pajama leg off one leg without tearing it. Um, Ebeling, to me, just didn't fit the pattern. This was the work of a crazed woman or an adolescent boy. And I deduced that along with Dr. P. Uh, Paul Leland Kirk, who deduced it before I did, on the ground that she was hit 35 times in the head with a hard object and none of the blows was fatal. Uh, if Sam Shepard 
hit you once in the head with a hard object, your head would be in the next county. Uh, he had been, before he uh, got in trouble, he was all physically very, very um, active and adept, played sports whenever he could. He was just kind of the neighborhood Good fellow, Jock. And, and Lee, in, in talking to all these lawyers, one of the big debates that we've been having is how much do you rely on reasonable doubt um, in your closing? Um, in your case, in the Shepard case, you pointed the finger at somebody else, but you also still talked about reasonable doubt quite a bit. Um, is it How important is it in a criminal trial to make sure the jurors understand reasonable doubt? Or is it more important to say, um, we've proven to you that the person is innocent? Um, that's a delicate question. There is no correct answer because I don't think I would make that decision until I stood up and began to give my final argument. It would depend on the equipoise of things at the time, if you felt that the jury really liked your defendant, I'd go for the uh, innocent verdict if it was available. Because that element usually has to be there. If they find he's kind of a scruffy guy, who probably in the wrong place at the wrong time, they don't like him enough to find him innocent. If I am not guilty, but you have to build a structure to the point where you're at not guilty before you want to try to leap any higher. Some will just sally on by as if a not guilty were given and they expected the Medal of Honor. And that's not the way to uh, approach a jury. But it, it certainly has been effective in my experience to explain to them to the extent the judge will let you and judges vary a lot in this respect. Uh, to explain to them uh, or invite them to reflect on the agony you go through when you and your family every day are pointed at with whispering fingers as someone who did something very bad in the community. How does Lee Bailey bring Sam Shepard home? We'll find out in For the Defense next. In the next segment, you're going to hear about a cross-examination that Lee Bailey does of Sam Gerber. And just to give you some background, Gerber was the coroner in the case who at the time did an inquest and found enough evidence to say that Sam Shepard was the murderer. And one of the main pieces of evidence that the coroner Gerber relies on is all of the blood spatter uh, and other evidence he says leads him to believe that the murder weapon was a surgical device. Well, Lee Bailey cuts right through that during his cross and crushes Gerber. And you're going to hear about that cross-examination in the next segment of For the Defense. So I I read also your cross of Gerber from the trial, and I imagine you were chomping at the bit to cross-examine this guy who just made up so much junk through the first trial, including that the murder weapon was a surgical device. And let me just read a little of the cross so that we're all on the same page. And then I want to ask you about it. You said to him, uh, well, now, Mr. Gerber, what kind of surgical instrument do you see here? You were referring to the blood uh, imprints on the pillow where at the first trial he said, you know, this was a surgical instrument. 
He says, I'm not sure. Would it be an instrument you yourself have handled? I don't know if I've handled one or not. Of course, you've been a surgeon. Uh, have you, doctor? No. Do you have such an instrument back at your office? No. Have you seen such an instrument in any hospital or medical supply catalog or anywhere, anywhere else, Dr. Gerber? No, not that I can remember. Tell the jury, doctor, where have you searched for the instrument during the last 12 years? I have looked all over the United States. And you didn't describe this phantom impression as a surgical instrument just to hurt Sam Shepard's case, did you, doctor? You wouldn't do that, would you? Oh, no. I mean, what a cross and what a, what a moment in the trial. Was that the turning point of the trial? No, I think it was one by then. But, um, you know, I was waiting for this little rascal because he was particularly offensive in dealing with Shepard. He uh, held an inquest and then threw Shepard's lawyer out of the room just to show what a powerful man he was. So I couldn't get Seltzer on the stand and punish him. But I figured we'll get one of the little guys. And, uh, and if they'd been smart, they'd have kept Gerber off the stand, forgotten the surgical instrument. They had nothing but grief waiting there. They knew there was no such thing. A gazillion doctors had told them there is no such thing, and he's going to get cremated. And uh, so I said, the hell with it. He's stupid enough to walk into the courtroom. Let's warm up. Warm up and, yeah. and, and you just put you punish him at that point. Oh, but he didn't have anywhere to go. What else could he say? Oh, I looked in Indiana. Oh, where in Indiana? Tell me the name of the doctor. They give me a picture of where you look. Give me a picture of the kinds of things you found that don't fit. He could have danced all day. He was better off really to take his castor oil in one teaspoon. So, so, Lee, you talked about, you know, when you get the verdict, <clears throat> excuse me, that you feel a sense of relief. And, and I know that feeling um, after not guilty verdict, a lot of times, instead of having huge parties and celebrations, it's, it's just a huge relief off of your shoulders when you have this man's life in your hands and, and you finally win. Um, is, that, is that what happens after the verdict? I mean, it's just, uh, you know, like a release? If there are... If there is a common experience that comes hard on the heels of the publication of the verdict in a criminal it's true to a lesser degree. In a civil case, if the stakes are high enough, but mostly it's criminal cases. I have noticed over the years two different sensations and they're fairly dependable. If after a tough trial, there's been a conviction. I usually wind up at the end of a trial where the jury's out, feeling as tight as a drumhead, like everybody had turned the screw until the drumhead was about to rip. And if there's a conviction, I just stay tight. Because the fight is on, nothing has changed. We're just going to a new level to do an appeal. If there's an acquittal, it's like somebody went around and loosened all the thumb screws and the whole structure sagged. And I can sit there with a, uh, a very active bottle of something and enjoy the fact that I was so brilliant 
mistakes I thought about making, but didn't. You know, you, you talk about that that just untightening of the screws. It's it's such a great way to describe it. Um, there's so much stress that criminal defense lawyers endure um, in these trials. Do you think that's one of the reasons we, we don't have many trials anymore? I mean, uh, criminal defense trial lawyers are a dying breed, Lee. Uh, they are, but they always were. Uh, they have no financial support, by and large. Still is no system. You know, the big shots like Roy and Tom and so forth will get a big fee often enough and medium-sized fees uh, often enough to keep a nice office. Most criminal defense lawyers uh, don't drive around in BMWs and, and Rolls Royces. And I think it's a tough business. I don't think I would go into it again. I know I never recommended any of my children or my brother uh, go into it. And <clears throat> I, I think the trials generally are receding. I wrote a book called cross-examination called Excellence in Cross-Examination for West Publishing. I've written lots of books for them. They've all sold well. And I was having dinner with the Chief Justice at his home up in Maine, and the book had just come out about five years ago. And I showed it to him. And he said, you know, I'm sure that's a good book and very authoritative. Uh, it probably won't sell either. And I said, Chief, you know, you're breaking my heart, all my books. So why, why do you think it won't sell? He says, because nobody goes to court anymore. <laughs> and but but I mean, it, it, it's sort of it's sort of sad that that um, we're not going to court anymore. And and um, I mean, how, how do we what books and what trials should should young lawyers be looking at so that they can learn how to cross examine like Lee Bailey? Uh, that would be a good, a very good book to start. There's another one called Art of Cross-Examination by Francis Wellman, which has been around for years, but still good. There's one called The Art of Advocacy by Lloyd Paul Stryker. They were both New York lawyers. They were both pretty vicious cross-examiners, but capable. And uh, then there are a number of fictional accounts which I think are instructive. Not all totally fictional, but I'll just reel them off. The movies, Anatomy of the Murder, uh, Witness for the Prosecution to Kill a Mockingbird, and QB7, which is a civil case, or libel uh, Leon Uris brought suit, uh, was sued for saying that a certain Middle Eastern doctor was a monster. They are excellent examples of good lawyers at work, but there isn't any training ground now that I know of. Used to be when the military was more active, if you could become a military trial counsel right out of law school, uh, that was a lot of good experience. Today, most people become public defenders and prosecutors, uh, but <laughs> very frankly, not very many of them become superstars, as you would well know. And you live in a community where there are lots of good trial lawyers. I mean, I, 
I owe a great moment in my life to Bill Hicks, chairman of the Orange Bowl, who put me in the 50-yard line for the Jets-Colts game in 1967. Wow. Wow, that's, I, I love it. Tell us about that. Um, well, um, years later, I met an outside a wide receiver for the Colts who was then ambassador to the Bahamas. And he said that the uh, game had an odor to it. But when I watched it played, I was rooting for Broadway Joe, who was a friend of mine um, by that time. And uh, Broadway Joe went out and drank all night before, and then let him in a lick them, and he did. It's <laughs> great. Let, let me ask you, Lee. Um, We've talked about some of the great lawyers, Johnny Cochran, um, Edward Bennett Williams, Roy Black, Tom Mesro. Who who are the other great criminal defense lawyers that you've seen over the years? Well, just down in your uh, criminal defense lawyers, um, I certainly put Williams at the top. Uh, Charlie Bellows of New York, long gone Grant Cooper of Los Angeles, Percy Foreman of Houston, who tried 715 murder cases. Uh, Racehorse Haynes of Houston, who was the trickiest little lawyer I ever saw in my life, uh, but a very good one and a good friend of mine. And uh, you run up the string. Sometimes they stay in the limelight for a career. And sometimes it's just one or two cases that escalate them to the front pages, and then they fall off. I was told when I started out that uh, when lightning strikes once, the community's not that fascinated. And it is certainly true that when the Shepard case was tried in October, second trial of 1967, six, Two-week trial, he was acquitted. The next week in New Jersey, we tried Dr. Coppolino, also a doctor, for murdering his wife. He was acquitted. Theo Wilson, who was the scion of the print reporters, worked for, I think, the New York Daily News, uh, said, now we're going to have to bear watching. Uh, Lightning doesn't strike twice. And it did. Well, and she was at every other trial I had of importance. Along with a, a, there used to be a great crowd of print reporters, and I lament their loss because they're not out there anymore. Lee, let me ask you as we're as we're finishing up, since you're the um, lie detector expert, and and we've talked about OJ. I read that um, there was some some controversy over an OJ polygraph. Can you talk about that or no? Uh, yes, and I've written a special chapter on. And my book about um, is coming out hopefully before the end of the year. And it'll be the most documented book uh, on the case so far of about eight that have been written. I say that simply because every fact that I allege is having been brought out in the trial, I have endnoted to the transcript. So you go right to the spot where it was said, but 
The polygraph was something that Bob Shapiro screwed up royally from the very first moment. When he had it to bar, he called me to try and get me to straighten it up. I stopped it. OJ, of course, wound up in jail a day later uh, on two subsequent occasions, which I described. We tried to give uh, OJ a polygraph test. And I dare say the issue is not dead yet. The, the question has become, and here's his situation. He said when he was old, I would like to find whoever did this. Suppose any father might have been the same, said the same. Uh, he immediately began to get criticized for failing to solve the case, um, and not putting up lots and lots of money and so forth. Well, he didn't have any money. The Goldmans had a lien on all of it. So I began looking for others who would put up money as a reward only for the capture or the information leading to the capture of anybody involved, not just the killer. I thought there were more than one. Uh, if they would put up the money, OJ would give them, for Dar, the rights to a polygraph test without knowing what the result was. And, you know, people like the National Enquirer feed on stuff like that. And there was a time when I thought it was going to go forward. It didn't, but I've got another 50 years to live. I'll figure. Fantastic. And here's to another 50 years. I really want to thank you, uh, Lee, for doing this. This was great. I love the stories. And, and uh, you know, here's hoping that we can revitalize uh, criminal defense lawyers into going to trial again and fighting like you have for such a great long career. Let's do that. And let's both rush out of the room and don a mask. <laughs> nice seeing you. Thank you. Well, that's the end of season one of For the Defense. It's been my true honor and pleasure to talk to these real criminal defense lawyers who have the courage to try cases. And I want to thank them. Donna Rotuno, Roy Black, Tom Mesero, H.T. Smith, Marty Weinberg, and of course, Lee Bailey for agreeing to be interviewed. Next season promises to be just as good. We're doing the interviews now of Alan Dershowitz, David Gerger, Michael Tiger, Rob Carey, Hank Asbill, Jane Weintraub, and others. And we look forward to launching season two soon. I want to thank my partner in all of this, Raconteur and Alfred Spellman, for uh, backing and producing these episodes. And I'm very excited uh, to talk to some more true criminal defense lawyers next season. I wanted to thank all of you for listening, for sending me your comments. Please keep them coming and I will incorporate them into the interviews for next season. And again, thank you for listening to For the Defense. It's been a lot of fun for me. I hope it was for you as well. Thank you. <laughs>